Luke 4, 16. Speaking of Jesus, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. Amen. To set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And all the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Jesus told us why he came. Reading from Isaiah. And he wanted people to know what I want to talk about tonight. That you are the mission. You are God's mission God bless you. Please be seated. In the past several weeks, we've been focused on the message and the mission of the church. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who's above all, through all, and in you all. And then the mission of the church, the mission of this church, the Atlanta West Pentecostal Church family, is to lead people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and develop them into fully devoted followers of him. Evangelism and discipleship, that's our mission. And we believe in that mission that an open door leads to an open heart, that God guides us to people who are hungry for truth. It's my world and my mission, and this mission is possible. And last week in our missions conference, what a tremendous presence of God last Wednesday Outstanding message by Brother Jordan Booker. And then this past Sunday, Nathan Herod, Brother Nathan Herod. What a tremendous message. But tonight, I want to tell you something that's been in my spirit for several days. I want you to know that you're the mission. Amen. The mission of the church is not some grandiose, lofty goal of crowds of people and programs to keep people engaged and involved in our church and Organizationally, we value structure and organization, but that is not the mission. We recognize the importance of facilities and the care of our campus, but a building is merely a tool. This building and the next building and every building is merely a tool, amen, to carry out the mission of the church. We spend a considerable amount of time, energy, and effort Money, making sure that we have a wonderful place to worship God and make sure it's clean and the air conditioning is working and we'll be soon replacing the two 20-ton units in the Family Life Center because you're generous and because we try to be good stewards. I'm just going to tell you that and it'll just happen and we'll never break a sweat, literally, uh, because of your generosity. Not this time of year and especially not yesterday or today, but... Amen. We, we work on those kinds of things because you have to. It's just part of the work. But buildings and programs, organization and structure, they are a means to an end. They are not an end 
in themselves. The end, the goal is souls. It's your soul. Because you, I want you to know tonight that you are the mission of the church. It's not Afghanistan or Uganda or some faraway place. That's part of the mission. But you're God's mission. And you're this church's mission. And you're not just a tool to get it done. You are the reason this is a church. You're the reason we're here tonight. You are the reason we do everything we do. Amen. Every individual who encounters the Lord through our witness is our mission. Your family is our mission. And the ultimate goal is to do our best that you are saved and spend eternity in heaven. You matter to God. And this church exists because you, you, the person I'm talking to now, the person who is hearing me online and in this sanctuary tonight, you're the mission. Luke chapter four finds Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. And he attended church, which was his custom. I don't know how much traffic he had to fight. I don't know how long he'd worked that day or if he got to eat dinner on his way to church on the Sabbath day. Of course, you know, they didn't do much on the Sabbath, but his custom was your custom. He went to church and he came to Nazareth where he was, had been brought up, his hometown. And he went to church like he always did when he was there. And on this occasion, Jesus volunteered to read the Bible in church. He stood up for to read. So the attendant handed him what would have been their Bible reading for that week. He handed to Jesus a scroll of scripture that happened to be the book of Isaiah. It's interesting that Jesus just didn't open up and start reading what fell open. I've done that before. You probably have, you know, like you really needed to hear a word from God and you open it up and hope that'd be it. And it was not it. Or maybe it was it. It's happened before where it was what I needed to read, but it might be, you know, go thou and do likewise. You know, Judas went out and hanged himself. Go thou and do likewise. But he got the book of Isaiah and the Bible said he found the passage that he wanted to read. It would have been in our Bibles, Isaiah 61, one and two. And he got the Bible, he opened the book, found the place where it was written and he read these words that are part of our text tonight. I want to read them again. And Jesus is saying of himself, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, Isaiah 61 is a messianic prophecy. It is a prophecy of the Messiah to come. And Jesus is reading this as just a person in the, in the room at that time, right? And so they're just listening. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. This is an amazing passage of scripture that Jesus is reading from tonight. Amen. And uh, the poor probably means literal poor people. Not just wealthy people, not insiders, not up and in, but down and out. But we know that Jesus in the Beatitudes talked about the poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual poverty. We'll take Luke 4, 18 for face value. 
that the gospel is preached to the poor. God has chosen the poor of the world, rich in faith. It's not always the people who have everything who have the most faith. And all you have to do is travel to a developing country, to a poverty-stricken area, to see people who are happy and rich in faith. Amen. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, the disappointed, the emotionally, mentally, and physically broken. And Jesus said, that's why I've come. They're my mission. And when you qualify for that statement that Jesus has come to heal the brokenhearted, you can just raise your hand and say, I am the mission. He came to preach deliverance to the captives. He came to preach to people who are bound by addictions or struggling with habits they cannot break. That's why he came. They were and still are his mission. He came to people who are captive in an abusive relationship. They are and were his mission. He came to deliver captives that are even in the church that are struggling with things. They are his mission. He came for the recovering of sight to the blind. I believe that this particular phrase is literal, physical blindness. I don't think it applies here to spiritual blindness. I think in the context, he's talking about people who are sick diseased, struggling with illnesses. When we say with the stripes where you're healed, that may be inferring spiritual damages or wounds. But I think Isaiah here, 61, is talking about the people Jesus came to, that his mission was people who were blind or sick in any way. He came to set at liberty them that are bruised. This is similar to the phrase about captives. But it means those who are pressed down by great calamity. You know how you get bruised. You get hit real hard. It might be accidental. It might be intentional. But it really hurts about the same. And it causes a bruise just the same. It might have been friendly fire, but it was fire and it hurt. And you're bruised. But Jesus came to set at liberty them that are bruised. Because it seems that people who have been wounded and bruised in life now need to be set free from those bruises. It might be an abusive relationship of some form. It may be physical abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, or some other kind of bruise that was inflicted on a person. They were and are the mission of Jesus. He came to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And it is referring to the year of Jubilee. According to Leviticus 25 and 9, there would be a loud trumpet that would start this year. It would be sounded on the 10th day of the seventh month, the day of atonement. It would be after seven Sabbaths of years that passed by, 49 years, and it would mark a one-year period of Jubilee for everyone in Israel every 50th year. All property would revert back to the owner's Maybe they had lost it over time, but it would revert back. It was a great leveler, the year of Jubilee. Everyone who had been compelled by poverty to sell themselves as slave to their brothers and sisters, Israelites, they would be set free on this 50th year of Jubilee. And in addition to this, there would be no sowing, no reaping. You would live off what had been accumulated the previous year, it was really a year of Sabbath rest, one long year. 
You get everything you lost in the year of Jubilee. And Jesus said, I have come to proclaim Jubilee, that all the slaves go free, that everything that you've lost has been restored. I have come to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And everybody that is lost, amen, we are the mission for which Jesus Christ came. Personal liberty, restoration of property, a year of rest. That's who we are in Jesus Christ. We are set free, we are restored, and we have entered into his rest that came to us by the Holy Ghost. For this is the rest, and this is the refreshing. And then Jesus closed the book. Now, it would have been a scroll, probably with two rolls on either end, you know, not like a book as we see a book. But he rolled it up. He gave it back to the minister. He sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And then he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That this is my mission. I am the Messiah, and I have come for this mission. Now, it is amazing where Jesus closed the book. What he read is significant, and what he did not read, which was the next phrase, is equally significant. What Jesus paused at created a 2,000-plus-year phrase, kind of a break, in this passage, what Jesus did not read from Isaiah 61 and 2, after to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, is and the day of vengeance of our God. That would come in his second coming when he came back and all the world would feel the wrath of the Lamb of God. The church dispensation is a period of time that will end with the, the day of vengeance of our God. But in his first coming, Jesus did not come like that. The Bible said in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 that it is an acceptable time, that today is the day of salvation that God has helped us. Now, I want to talk about the Bible because the Bible is a balanced book. And it's a this and that book. Jesus came to build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We were singing about that a while ago, and we were rejoicing that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. We know that we have ultimate victory. The church is the called out ones, the entity that hell cannot defeat. The church is universal, and it is local. And what is bound on earth by the local church is bound in heaven. God honors the actions of the local church. The church is made up, according to Revelation 7, 9, a multitude which no man can number, a lot of people. The book of Acts records the rapid growth of the church, 120, you know, initially on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 souls added to the church, 5,000 added to the church, a great multitude of people, and they filled Jerusalem with their doctrine and later they say, these that have turned the world upside down have come here also. That was not really a compliment, but it was a recognition of the impact of the church. So church growth is God's will. 
And when we see a month when you get the messenger and there's only a handful of people baptized, maybe no one receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, we realize that that is not the goal. That's not the mark. God's church was intended to increase in the earth and we can all do better in that. Amen. But the church is not a numbers game. When 3,000 souls are added to the Lord, God doesn't see a group of 3,000 souls. He says he sees 3,000 individuals that were added to the church. He sees every one of those people. Jesus was talking about our value in Matthew chapter 10. And he said, two sparrows are sold for a farthing, a copper coin. But not one of them falls to the ground without God noticing amazing you know God this great God of the universe takes notice of a little tiny worthless bird that dies the very hairs of your head are numbered he said that's a challenging verse for me you know when I read that God had a hard time keeping count for some of us as the numbers dwindled the Bible said he knows now it says they're numbered. I don't mean, I don't know if that means one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That they each have a number, or he knows how many there are, but it talks about God's attention to the most minute detail about us. And then he said, Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. You see, his mission is us. You are God's mission. On your worst day. On your most down day, on the day when the accuser of the brothers and sisters has made you feel condemned, on the day you feel like no one understands you, he knows you, he sees you, and you're of much more value to him than the birds that he carefully monitors as a God with nothing, nothing escapes his gaze. So no person is insignificant to God. He cares about the individual. He cares about you. You are his mission. The psalmist wrote about this in Psalm 139, 13, about how God knew us. New King James, for you formed my inward parts and covered me in my mother's womb. This is why we believe in the sanctity of life. Amen? It's not tissue, it's a person. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me. When as yet there were none of them, God knew our days before we even had our first one. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, if I should count how many times God has thought about me, how many times God has thought about you. They're more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. To the Thessalonians, Paul was writing them about them receiving the gospel. And it's a fascinating chapter, 1 Thessalonians 2. All of every in the Bible is fascinating, right? But Paul spoke to them that 
we are affectionately desirous of you. We're willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel only, but our own souls. You know, Paul said we're really willing to lay it all on the line for you. But then he said, why? Because you were dear to us. You weren't just, uh, you know, somebody in planning center online and church database. But you matter to me, Paul said. You were dear unto us, 1 Thessalonians 2 and 8 says. You weren't a statistic. We didn't view you as another star in our crown. I remember when I was young, somebody that I had witnessed to came to the Lord and received the Holy Ghost. And somebody said to me something like, well, that's a, that's a star in your crown. And I really didn't, I didn't understand what they were talking about. I, I thought, what does that mean? You know, is that, is that the motive? You know, I'm not trying to add to the stars in my crown. I, I think I was trying to help a person find the Lord. I don't think we should relate to it like that, but there are rewards and God sees all of that. I do know that. But, you know, Paul said that you know, we are trying to, we loved you. And the apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2 and 3 spoke about people who tried to make merchandise of people that, you know, they didn't really love them. The Bible talks about hirelings that flee when the wolf comes, that they're not really care about the flock. What I'm saying to to you tonight is that you are the mission. When we talk about lost people and we talk about missionary work and we give generously and we'll report on that on Sunday, what the commitments were. It's another amazing year. I was looking at the, the month-end deposit report for October. And October, what an amazing month of giving from our church. It's incredible to see what our church does and gives but I want you to understand that you are, you're the reason for all of that. That you are the mission. It's not someone else, somewhere else. It's you that matters to God and that matters to this church. In 2012, I taught a message on June 3rd, according to my notes. One lost soul is one too many. And I taught from Luke 15. I want to just excerpt a couple things from that message now remember the shepherd, he had 100 sheep and one was lost. He leaves a 99 safe in the fold. He doesn't leave them vulnerable. Whoever would think that is not really getting the Lord. But the shepherd did not make a statistical decision about the retention of sheep. You know, because if you said, I've got 99, I lost one. Oh, well, it's just one. Got a 99% retention rate of sheep. But the Bible says, you know these stories well in Luke 15, that that's not how the shepherd thought about a lost sheep that had wandered away. Three stories in Luke 15, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And there are totally different approaches to each one. But the shepherd leaves a 99 in Luke 15, 4. What man of you having 100 sheep if he lose one of them? Doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness. There's a fold in the wilderness, by the way. And go after that which is lost until he find it. Jesus taught that one lost sheep is one too many. One lost soul is one too many. That that one lost sheep was the mission. The other parables, the lost coin and the lost son, make the, make the same point. That one lost soul matters to God. And all the angels of heaven, all of heaven rejoices over one sinner 
that repents. In Matthew 18, verse 10, Jesus taught this. Take heed that you despise not one. Everybody please say one. One of these little ones. It implies one of these insignificant ones. Not one of these important ones. Not one of these big shots, but one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven... Their angels do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven. And then Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The same thing he says in Luke 19 about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus mattered to Jesus, one lost tax collector, right? So I want you to say, I know I'm being repetitive on purpose, giving you some scriptural basis For what I'm saying to you tonight, that you are God's mission, that you matter deeply to God more than you could ever fathom. Amen. I was thinking one time about the sermons that Jesus preached. Some of what we might think were his best sermons that he preached them to one person. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That amazing sermon was preached to one man named Nicodemus who came to him at night. For God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He preached that incredible sermon to one woman at the well who had had five husbands and was living with the man out of wedlock. To a grief-stricken woman named Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. And to that sinful tax collector that everybody hated, invited himself to his house. And that's when in Luke 19, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. There are obviously time that Jesus preached to multitudes. The 5,000 that he fed, he had them sit down after he taught them, but there are also times he preached to a single soul. Jesus had time for one lost man at Gadara who was tormented by demons, one lost woman taken in the act of adultery, that one lost tax collector who was too short to see over people, one lost fisherman whose life was changed forever, one lost soul is so valuable to God that he took Philip out of a red-hot revival in Samaria and told him, I want you to go down to Gaza, to that desert, because there's one guy there. He's an Ethiopian eunuch, we learn, and he's going away from truth. He's going back to Ethiopia, leaving Jerusalem. He's also reading the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, about the suffering Savior. But that one person really matters to God. They're God's mission. 2 Peter 3 and 9 tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any. How many people is God willing to see be lost if it's up to him? Not any. That not any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If it was up to God, everybody would be saved He paid the price for the whole world. Once for all, the Bible says, he did all he could to save your soul because you matter to him 
because you are the mission. In Acts 27, when there are 276 men on a ship, most of them not saved, when the Lord promised Paul that all of them would be saved in that storm, every one of them made it to shore, and every one of them survived. The stories of Luke 15 express God's intention to save every person who will come to repentance, every lost sheep, every coin that can be recovered, every son that will come back to the Father's house, God is working and God is waiting because those lost people are God's mission and we are God's mission. We know from the Bible that our value to God is not based on merit. It's not what you've done. It's not by works of righteousness that you've done. There's nothing that I could have done, you could have done to earn salvation. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. But God's love for people, in spite of their sinful condition, demonstrated to me most famously in his love for the thief on the cross. Lived a thief, dying a thief. All he's got is a prayer. That was enough. You remember me when you come into your kingdom. This day you'll be with me in paradise. Certainly not because you deserve it, not for anything you'll ever give back. Just because I created you in my image and I love you, and I want to demonstrate to the world that I came to worthless people like you. And I'm willing to allow you to find forgiveness at this time between the testaments hanging there on a cross. But here we are, sitting in the sanctuary, watching online. I really felt in my spirit that I needed to remind you that you're the mission. You're not insignificant to God. You matter to him more than you can fathom. Amen. So I was typing these words. I felt like I needed to say that you may feel alone and isolated. You may feel that no one cares for you. You don't really matter. You may feel like the psalmist in Psalm 142 that I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. But I can assure you by the words of the apostle Peter that you can cast all your care upon him for he cares for you. To any hurting soul tonight, I want you to know that you are the mission. You're the reason that Jesus Christ came and died in your place. You're the reason that there's an Atlanta West Pentecostal church. You are God's mission. God loves irresponsible young people. He loves declining elders. They're no longer able to take care of themselves. He loves us at every season of our lives. He loves the wealthy. He loves the impoverished. He loves the educated and he loves the ignorant. He loves the refined and he loves the rough. God so loved the world, John 3, 16 says that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John three seventeen. for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Romans 5 and 6, for when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. 
But God commendeth, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Psalm 147, 2, the Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. He loves people who are hurting. He told those who were his servants to go out and invite people to the dinner. You know, the invited guests refused to come. He said, I want you to go out into the streets and lanes. Go quickly. And I want you to bring into my house, the church, the poor, the maimed, the cripple, the halt, the King James says, and the blind. Boy, that must have looked like a really august audience. Here they are at this wedding feast of a very wealthy man. In that wedding feast, you got people who can't walk, can't see, can't pay, beat up, disfigured, maimed. But they're all there. There may be times that you feel that you don't matter to anyone else in the world. But I want to assure you tonight that you matter to God. And you matter to this church. You matter. You are the mission. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is speaking to save people. Romans 8 is about the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. And he's talking about those three things that are so powerful who can be against us, who can condemn us, who can separate us. Romans 8, 31. What shall we say then to these things? What's, how are we going to conclude about what God has done for us? We're going to say that if God be for us, who can be against us? And then Paul says this. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us, us believers, Freely give us all things. Paul is trying to say to people like you and me, and we can talk about this great mission that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. And we can talk about the price that he paid. He spared not his own son. But Paul wants us to understand. Do you think he would pay that kind of price to get you saved and then abandon you? You think he would pay the price of his blood to redeem you? And then not come through for you when you need him? Do you think he would do that for you when you were a sinner? And now that you're his child? Say, sorry kid, I'm not doing that. I'm not taking care of you. I'm not going to help you. Paul was saying kind of in effect what I'm saying to you tonight. That no, child of God, you're still his mission. You were his mission when you were lost. And now that you're saved, you still matter to him. You're not just a part of this conglomerate, the church. He knows you, he sees you, and he loves you. Often when we're teaching, when I'm teaching, I'm, we're being challenged to do better, go farther, climb higher, dig deeper. And as a church, I hope we're never caught up with the theoretical aspects of church life. God help us never to become 
a slave to the mechanics of church work and miss the mission. There are times when we are focused and busy working on the components of church work that make the mission possible. May God help us never fail to remember that our mission is people. And Jesus came to save the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, the blind, the bruised, the rejected. You read the letters of Paul, they're fascinating. Such a brilliant theologian. Romans especially is like that masterpiece. It's a theological masterpiece. Read Romans 9 through 11 and wrap your brain around that. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, Paul says, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. The New Living Translation says, Live in harmony with each other. I love this next phrase. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. In Romans 16, I've taught on Romans 16 before, but Paul gives some specific greetings. And if I counted right, he greets by name. He says, please greet, greet by name, 26 people in the church in Rome that he personally knew. He says, I want you to greet Phoebe, Priscilla, Aquila, Epinetus, Mary, Andronicus, Eunia, Amplius, Urbane, Apelles, Aristobulus, household, Herodian, the household of Narcissus, Trophina, Tryphosa, Paris, Rufus. All of these 26 people but I want you to, I want those people in that church in Rome to know that I love them and I greet them that it's not just the church in Rome, but it's human beings, it's individuals. This intellectual theologian, Paul, who had a laser-like focus on his mission, he never forgot that his people were, his mission was people. And he was never too proud or too uppity or too educated or intellectual to practice what he preached, to say, don't, don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. That's my mission. In this holy book about the mission of the church, it's clear that people matter to God. Tonight, I want you to never forget that you, you are that mission. Or maybe we should just kind of say it like this. I am the mission. Would you do it? I am the mission. Would you stand right now? Please, if you're able. I've learned that God knows things that I, I have no idea of knowing. And I've learned that at times you preach a sermon to a single soul. But generally, there's a lot of other people listening in. You need to hear what God says through his word, through a sermon or a Bible study. So for whomever, whoever needed this message tonight, 
wanted you to know how much you matter to God and to this church. You may have been devalued or rejected by other people in your life. You may feel like that life is an uphill climb and that you are insignificant. But tonight I hope you know from God's word that God loves you with an everlasting love and that you are the mission. If you're able and have time, would you join me at this altar, the front of our church? And it may be good to join with another brother or sister, you know, family member or men with other men and ladies with other ladies. It's not a family member. And I want us to open our hearts to God. And you may feel a burden to pray for somebody else, but that's really not my goal right now. What I'd really like for you to do is open your heart to God like a giant funnel. And let him pour in his everlasting love. And let your soul feel that you are my beloved son and daughter in whom I am well pleased. And I love you with an everlasting love. You are the reason I came. And I don't love you any less than I did the day I forgave you of your sins. I've got more of an investment in you now than I did the day I saved you. And if I loved you enough to die for you, I'm sure not going to abandon you between here and heaven. You're still my mission. You're still the apple of my eye. You're still on my mind every day. My thoughts toward you are still more than you can even count. You are the mission. 